Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to your own personal Beatles with me, Robin Allender. And I'm Jack Pelling. How are you, Jack? I'm good, thank you. Uh, I'm a bit snotty, but apart from that, I'm all well. Uh, just a bit of seasonal lurgy, but yeah. um, excited for this brand new episode. Yeah, we're delighted to have on this week John Higgs, who has just published a book about the Beatles and James Bond, which is called Love and Let Die. He could have called it Money Penny Lane. <laughs> oh, that's good. Many other possible <laughs> titles. But yeah. it's brilliant, a uh, brilliant book. And John he- John Higgs is a fantastic writer. As we've discussed previously, you know, he's written brilliant books about William Blake. Mm-hmm. He's written um, a book about the KLF. Um, he's got done a brilliant podcast about uh, called Watling Street, which is really worth checking out. And, yeah, what, what I like about the book is it's... Um, a Beatles book, which is less about the history and it's more about why and what what they mean. Yeah, you know, and I think I, I kind of like books that go in more that that direction. I think. Yeah, and it's quite similar to the way that we sort of like to think about the Beatles on this podcast. And uh, he's very he's someone who's very interested in sort of grey areas, which I find mm. particularly intriguing. And, um, you know, the sort of duality of the murkiness and how things repeatedly get reassessed and how the interesting stuff lies sort of in between. And that's kind of what makes the Beatles endure and so interesting and why there Mm. are so many people like us who still love to bang on about it after all these years, really. And where do you stand on Bond? Because you're quite a big Bond guy, aren't you? Well, I am a Bond guy. Guy, but I'm not, I wouldn't say like I'm sort of super nerdy. They're just sort of part of the f- cultural furniture in my life, really. Yeah. Um, I'd love, you know, I, I've probably got relatively good knowledge of most of the films and I've definitely seen mm. them all. Um, yeah. And I enjoy them sort of halfway between a guilty pleasure and sometimes a genuine <laughs> pleasure. Right. Yeah. I was once in a pub and there was a group of guys there quite kind of blokey guys, and they were talking about James Bond. And one of them said, "Who?" they were talking, having the classic who was the best Bond mm. kind of chat. To which the answer is Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, no, Timothy Dalton. And um, one of them goes, Daniel Craig's the best Bond there's ever been. But as he said it, it he did that thing where it's like, you know, when your voice breaks slightly, so it sounded like he was he was crying. Oh, <laughs> Daniel, yeah. Daniel Craig's the best Bond there's ever been. I mean, it does seem like to that. invoke a, quite a visceral reaction. Yeah, um, it does. Those, those more recent ones. But um, yeah, I'm definitely more in the kind of 60s and 70s era. than Right. Like, I mean, I think ones. I think I say this on the show, but I think for me it's about the ones you saw when you were a kid. So yeah. t- Timothy Dalton and late Roger Moore, I think. The ones yeah. that stand up for me. I mean, I grew up in the sort of dark ages where there weren't really any bonds when I was 
just the right sort of age for them, really. Really? I thought you would be a Pierce, Pierce Bronholm. I am, I guess I'm a sort of Bronholm millennial. But mm. um, there, there seemed to be that, that big gap between 89 and 95 seemed like a real chasm oh, yeah. when you were growing yeah, up. Yeah. Um, oh. yeah, I think of them sort of before and after that, really. Yeah. One of the things John Higgs writes about is this kind of duality of how the Beatles and Bond represent these two different types of England. Mm. And he, and I think we mention it in the show, but we don't really explain it because John uses this great phrase of the Norman continuity empire, yeah. which, he, which he refers to, he says, a network of great wealth, which was established nearly a thousand years ago when William the Bastard of Normandy defeated King Harold at Hastings and claimed <laughs> this newly conquered land for himself. And he kind of has this idea that kind of, the, the England of Bond that Bond kind of fights for, the things I do for England, kind of represents this kind of old archaic version of England, which is also kind of quite magpie-like. It kind of and is also in a way kind of not real. You know, the whole idea of received pronunciation not being a real accent. Mm. You know, it's kind of this invented idea of England. And then he says, you know, kind of the Beatles came along with a much more recognisable version of England. Um, which didn't have that deference to the kind of old order. Yeah. And this is, can I read a little quote from it? Because this is a great do, yeah. bit about those two, two Englands. When we cheer on Bond and fantasise about living his life, we unconsciously find ourselves supporting the powers that be. Bond casts a glamour over us in the archaic sense of the word. The spell was massively weakened, however, by the arrival of the Beatles, whose very existence was a reminder that the England that Bond fought for was something very different to the place where we lived and raised our families. This other England of the Beatles was far more relatable and fun. Once you grasped that England had two meanings, it was not difficult to decide where your allegiance lay. I thought that's really yeah, good. That's brilliant. That sums it up yeah. pretty well. Because yeah. it, it is essentially that sort of, it's about the post-war British identity crisis that yeah. it feels like that's sort of only just culminating in a horrible mm. way, um, you know, 70 years on now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting framing of what um, Britishness or Englishness is, whether it's mm. the sort of co-opted post-Brexit version or, you know, the post-war blunted sort of the empire that Bond is and the rejuvenation of what mm. the Beatles represented in that. So, you know, there's, it's so much to unpack in that. So, and mm. it never ceases to be fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. In the intro, we also have our weekly wings, our brand <laughs> new feature for this series. So, yeah. shall we um, take it away? Take it away. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so this week on Weekly Wings, we've got a song called Little Lamb Dragonfly, which is on Red Rose Speedway. It's an, another one, the same as last week, another one which actually started during the Ram sessions. So I think maybe that's why it kind of, for me, it kind of stands out on Red Rose Speedway a little bit. It's slightly more unusual. And for mm. me, this song, I think, is is so interesting because it's quite weird as a song. It's almost like two songs put together. Yeah, But it, for me... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just kind of reading around it. Some people think that it, there's there are a few lines there that might be kind of aimed at Lennon as a kind of, there's a, since you've gone, I, I never know, I go on, but I miss you so. Some people think that mm -hmm. might be aimed at John. But for me, it sounds very Lennon-esque, I think. Do you think so? Yeah. And I think the start, the guitar riff, I think mm. it's, I feel like that's a little nod to Across the Universe. Maybe, yeah. It's got a sort of, 
it's quite kinksy for me. It feels like something right. that could be on the Village Green Preservation Society or something. In that, yeah, and it's sort of deceptively. For me, that this song, it almost feels like it's going to be quite a simple bit of kind of baroque pop, and then it sort mm. of unfurls into this really yeah. weird, meandering, almost sort of proggy in nature thing yeah. that's incredibly complicated. I, I think the melody sounds Lennon-esque, and I think the kind of double tracking makes it kind of sound a little Lennon-esque. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's interesting is it is... It's it's way too long. It's over yeah. six minutes. Yeah, and there yeah. are other kind of just songwriting decisions he's making in it which just feel a little bit I don't know. I'm not you know I'm not I'm not God, I would never slag off Paul, but you know, they're not quite <laughs> the they're not quite at his peak songwriting. No. But that's what makes it interesting because it's kind of like a bit of a curate's egg, you know. You can feel himself being torn towards this seventies soft rock direction, but it yeah. does have this very kind of strangeness to it as well i think well it sounds like a um a man who's completely unchallenged yeah which is yeah. sometimes the problem with wings in totally that, um as yeah. paul you know by his own admission and some his greatest work is mostly collaborative whether yeah. it's with yeah. producers or co-writing and sometimes mm. he needs someone to sort of rein in his slightly more indulgent impulses and yeah. this uh, sounds like there was definitely no one <laughs> there at the time but, saying, how many key changes do we need, Paul? <laughs> yeah. And also there's a bit in it, that bit I just quoted, the, since you've got I never mm. know. Yeah, it actually sounds like Christoberg. <laughs> he, he genuinely does. Yeah, no, he does. He's it's like true. pushing in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Um, I, I, I would have to say, I mean, we obviously all the love in the world for Paul, but... I'm not a big fan of this. Really? Um, oh, yeah, I think it's sort of because when even when you mentioned the song, I was like, oh yeah, I know the one, and then it just it it doesn't really hold my attention because it's so sort of structurally incoherent. I know what you mean because the, the I mean the, the little lamb section is completely different to the dragonfly section. Yeah. So they are two different songs, and I think I just think it needed to be so much more concise i think because yeah, yeah i mean there's there's two i think the problem is there's too many ideas and there's probably a lovely yeah. song in there but there's, yeah. there's too much going on in it for me and it doesn't sort of sit as a complete you know there's nothing wrong with having you know sections of you know i like things like uncle albert and things that some people mm. have a bit of a problem with because it's just really who has a problem with uncle well, albert i think some people would say that's paul in kind of almost granny music mode being right. quite twee and you know a little bit indulgent well this is on the twee side in fact i think i mean this is just from the wikipedia i think he says it was gonna be for rupert the bear <laughs> oh right okay yeah <laughs> so we'll crack on shortly with john higgs and we'll be back at the end of the show to tease what's coming up next week please continue to rate the show if you're on apple Podcasts, because that helps other people find it and uh, it's nice to read the new reviews i found out this week that we can read all of the reviews from the rest of the world which i'd never seen before so that was quite a nice ego boost to see uh, lots of <laughs> lovely uh, messages from people from all over the world particularly in scandinavia didn't know we were so 
big in uh, big in Scandinavia. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks for listening. So if you're listening from Sweden or Finland or Denmark, then uh, we have read those now. Thank you very much. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. And if you want to support the show and get your episodes ad-free and a little bit earlier than everyone else, as well as some upcoming bonus podcasts, including one we're going to do about the super deluxe version of Revolver, which is coming out quite soon, you can either go to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles and sign up there, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and you can now subscribe through the app there and you'll get all the same benefits. So it's a little bit easier to sign up. Uh, you can follow us on all the social medias at Personal Beatles. And if you want to get in touch with us, I haven't really got time to go through emails this week, but we'll try and read some out next week. And you can email me, jack at homespunsounds.com and share your personal Beatles with us. We should probably mention and apologize for the fact that the audio quality of this episode is not quite where we would like it to be due to some slightly terrible technical problems we had on the day but after much panicking we were saved by the audio wizardry of johnny white really really so we're really really grateful (laughs) to johnny for that so without further ado here is here are john higgs (laughs) personal beatles Hi, John. Hello. Well, thank you for having me, and, and welcome back. It's about time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it has been a while. I'm not going to, like, <laughs> tell you off for, like, taking so long. It's just good to have you back. Well, it's very nice to be back, and, you know, well, in the sort of hiatus when we've been umming, umming and ahhing about uh, whether we we're going to return and in what form, um, books like the one you've got coming out made me think, oh, God, it'd be so good to talk to him about that. Um, So, um, yeah, as you would have heard in the intro, John has got an amazing book uh, out called uh, Love and Let Die. Bond, the Beatles and the British Psyche. Fantastic. I basically do books about British things that start with B. (laughs) I've done two books on William Blake, Bond and the Beatles, and eventually I'll get round to the letter C, but I'm still... (laughs) Still very B-based. Great. And have you always been a massive Beatles fan? Beatles fan, yes. Um, But, well, particularly from the 90s onwards, really. Right. I I mean, I used to live in Liverpool from about, when was it, 89 to 94. And I'm from just outside, about 20 miles outside in North Wales originally. So that was my sort of stomping ground where you'd you'd go at the weekend for a lot of gigs or shopping or stuff like that. And at, at the time... I don't know, the Beatles were quite invisible around there. Mm. And when I, I didn't really hear them when I lived there. Mm. And then I sort of moved away and then got into the Beatles. And now when I go back to Liverpool and you go mm. into all the same old pubs yeah. and they're all like, John Lennon used to drink here and you yeah. just yeah. You can't get away with it. There's been a real sea change in the sort of reaction to them. So was that kind of just sort of pre-anthology then? When it was? Yeah, of- I'd say it was pre-anthology. Because yeah. um, the video for Free as a Bird... Mm. I used to live just in the middle of Penny Lane. There's a road in the middle called Cars Lake Road, and I just lived the last but one on Cars Lake Road. And there's a lovely shot uh, in Free as a Bird where they've made the street up like the 1960s, and there's the nurse, and there's all this beautiful mm. thing. And it's all utterly convincing, except for the house that I used to... It's got a big, like, you know, fire alarm on the front of the burglar alarm, yeah. which if you spot it, you go, oh, I missed Mr. Thing there. But it's... Uh, I always look out for it. It's always a lovely sort of thing. It's brilliant. Mm. The kind of premise of the book is the kind of way that Bond and the Beatles represent these two aspects of kind of British or English psyche. And it kind of starts with this incredible coincidence, really, of the Dr. No 
coming out the same day as Love Me Do. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, do you, I mean, do you want to kind of sort of briefly explain how the thesis of the book yeah, comes I mean, that, from that moment? That's you know? kind of what I wanted to write about, something about the Beatles, mm. but finding a way that hasn't been done is is the sort of tricky part. And I was sort of aware that um, we're at the stage we're at now, we're pretty good on what happened, mm. you know, with Mark Lewison's books and all that sort of stuff. We've pretty nailed down really good sense of what happened. But the question of what it means yeah. is now starting to some, come more and more into view. Mm. And I, I think a lot of Beatles have this sort of moment when they just think, oh, yeah, the Beatles are actually bigger than I thought. And the further away they get, the more perspective we have on mm. and the bigger they sort of keep coming. And the, the notion in the 90s, people would talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if they were like equals or like mm. on a similar sort of level. And now that just... That just feels insane. To yeah, me. It's yeah. Just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And if you, um, I noticed on Google, if you search on United Kingdom on Google, it gives a dis- little fact box comes up and it gives a description of uh, the United Kingdom, in which in the second line mentions Beatles and the Shakespeare, yeah. uh, Beatles and Shakespeare, um, as the most defining things mm. of thousands of years of this island. You know, yeah, with yeah. you know uh, Charles, um, uh, I was going to say Charles Darwin or. Uh, Newton or, um, you know, Jane Austen or, you know, mm. Winston Churchill. There's, there's a lot they could have sort of mm. gone for, but the the, the, the um, importance of the Beatles is just this thing that keeps getting reassessed and reassessed. And, yeah. and this was a, sort of a way to sort of look at that by putting it next to a similar sort of outsized monster yeah. um, mm. and seeing the difference between them. I mean, I think that, like, because I'm reading your William Blake book as well. Oh, and, great, yes. And... Um, the thing you said when you were on the Adam Buxton podcast, because you've also written a book about the KLF, mm. you, you say this thing about when the KLF burnt a million pounds, your first reaction was you kind of didn't understand it. It didn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. So do you think that that's kind of an, an energy behind a lot of your books is this sense of mystery? Like we can't really understand yeah. the Beatles. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's If things you can understand are great, mm. you don't need to worry about them. Yeah. yeah mm. You know, you can read a book about them and go, I've got that now yeah, and yeah. sort of move on and sort of forget about them. Um, I do think there's a, especially after Get Back, um, there's a lot of people sort of reassessing their relationship with the Beatles. And it's a little bit like when Harry met Sally, you know, how throughout their entire life they were sort of part of each other's life or mm, yeah. uh, after a certain age, but they weren't a couple. They were just they were just friends yeah. and, and stuff like that. And eventually they go, oh, hang on, yeah. it's yeah. more than that. Yeah. I think a lot of people, the Beatles have just been there. Um, I don't say they didn't dislike them, but, they, you know, they, they weren't focused on them or, or something like that. And you just get to a certain age when you sort of realise the extent to which um, both, you know, yourself and the culture you're in don't make any sense without sort of factoring in the Beatles. Mm. Not not many things you could say that about, no. you know. Yeah. It's, you know, no offence to the fall or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, not, it's not, a, yeah. not a common thing. Yeah. So the well, you mentioned the coincidence of the date. Mm. That's really what sort of set me off because I was mm. a big enough Beatles nerd that... I don't know what I was doing on a Doctor No Wikipedia page at one point. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Wikipedia pages, yeah. you find yourself at them. Oh, yeah. And I just saw released, you know, 5th of October 1962, hmm. and I was a bit big enough nerd to go, no, yeah. no mm. way, that can't be right. 5th of October 1962, there's no, that can't be possible. Um, 
but it was, and that sort of... It's an excuse. Mm. But, but there's was, a remarkable amount of dovetailing because obviously mm. you make certain instant connections and um, you think, you know, Paul McCartney doing theme tunes and Ringo marrying a Bond girl and stuff. But sure. the overlap is quite extraordinary. I guess a lot of it is relatively inevitable when you've got two such big gargantuan exactly. sort of pop culture figures yeah but some of the stuff in there is uh that you know the crossover is is quite amazing sometimes but you know just you think you're going down one alley and it sort of swings back into mm. the beetle territory it's uh i know i mean what what got me was uh finding the review of the hamburg sex scene um written by ian fleming yeah, yeah. he like, loved it by uh, the way yeah <laughs> the week before they went to Hamburg. Yeah, that's extraordinary. That was kind of bizarre, yeah. wasn't it? And, and things like that. In Hamburg, normal heterosexual vice is permitted to exist in appropriate reservations and on condition that it remains open and light-hearted. How very different from the prudish and hypocritical manner in which we so disgracefully mismanage these things in England. Now, all this may sound pretty devilish in cold print on a Sunday morning in England, but in fact, except to the exceedingly chaste, it is all good, clean, German fun. Thrilling Cities by Ian Fleming, Sunday Times, 31st of July, 1960. Uh, for me, neither the Beatles or the Bond films actually really make sense. They're not... You, no one would really believe you. The, the notion that you could make a film and have a 25 sequels and have it running for 60 years and every film, you know, makes a, makes a lot of money and every film is, is a great success... Films just don't work like that. Mm. No one can do that. Yeah. It's impossible. You know, no one would believe it. Yeah. You know, if it was, if it wasn't for that. Uh, and in a similar level, no band can, you know, do what the, the, the Beatles did. So, the sense that they don't really fit in with the film industry or the music industry. There's something outside. There's something else. There are these two sort of cultural monsters that sort of astride our, um, you know, our cultural ecosystem. And hence, if you look at them together. You sort of find yourself seeing and a lot of them in a new light quite often. How, yeah. how they, they, the way they contrast tells you a lot about sort of each of them. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that was my excuse for yeah. I mean, the two together. Two of the big contrasts you draw out are the idea that the Beatles kind of represent love and Bond represents death. Yeah. Um, and the other great contrast is obviously to do with class. There are two versions of England, in, you're right, which, is, which I think is really good, and you use this great phrase of the Norman continuity empire, yes. which is just brilliant. <laughs> Maybe you can explain that, kind of unpack that a bit. But the, the idea yeah. that the, the Beatles were kind of the, the lack of deference to the kind of social classes, yeah, opposed I, with this idea of Bond, which was kind of about harking back to a, another idea of England. Mm -hmm. yeah, can can mm -hmm. you kind of talk to that a little bit? England in quotes, I yeah. don't think of it as now. I don't quite see it as England anymore. Yeah, yeah it, a lot of it comes back to... Uh, uh, an essay Hanif Qureshi wrote, um, the title of which is escaping me now, but you can find it online, and, it, and it's and it's great, and it's about the Beatles. But he's writing about how he's uh, when he was a, a lad, his music teacher told taught them in school that the Beatles didn't make their own music, mm -hmm. that um, it must be you know George Martin and, and Brian Epstein who, yeah. who do it must be because they're you know they 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 speak properly yeah. the Beatles mm -hmm. because they were you know not from the right families not yeah. from the right schools and things like that there's no way there's no way they could make music better than people who'd been to the right schools it was just Koreshi puts it they would destroy him to accept that his entire worldview was sort of based on this sense that uh, you know uh, these 
these people in my social are superior to, mm. to people who haven't had this education, haven't been to this sort of family. And that really unlocked a lot of British history in the from the 19 sort of well, 60s on um, for me. And that was really sort of helpful. And so the sense that the Beatles really were a threat to the uh, British establishment, it sort of made sense of why so many people were sending back their MBEs after... You know, the Beatles got their MBEs mm. and um, why that was a very sort of political act to sort of do that. Class just, you couldn't avoid it when you put Bond and um, uh, the Beatles next to each other. And it's kind of funny because they both, they're both doing it for England. You know, they're yeah. both, they both claim to represent England, yeah. but they're so different. I talk, I talk about things like Bond's hatred of cups of tea, <laughs> you know, yeah. and whereas the Beatles, you know, yeah. as, as I'm sure if you're followers of the Teetles yes. uh, mm. account will know, the Beatles, man, they love their tea. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bond had coffee, you know, Bond had no interest in football, but he had interest in, you know, golf or mm. those other sort yeah. of things. He just came from a completely different world. Mm. And the trick is they themselves claim it's England, oh, we're doing this for England, oh, the things I do for England, says Sean Connery with his Scotland Forever tattoo. And stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once you realise that, that when they say England, they don't actually mean England, they're just using the word to sort of, you know, uh, protect themselves, mm. a lot sort of falls into place, I think. Yeah, yeah. and there's, there's probably no better footage of that clash between the two England's than outside Savile Row, which we got oh, yes, to see in, yes. in um, you know, it's in the original Michael Lindsay Hogg film, but in the Get Back extended Def- version. Definitely. You just see these, and they're, they're quite bifurcated attitudes. It's like people are definitely pretty for or against, but, yeah, but that's definitely Bond's, I mean, it literally Savile Row is, you know, there's, there's where Bond hangs out. Totally. There's something so symbolic about the Beatles on the roof mm. of Savile Row. So all the establishment are going about their business on ground level. But above them, like above them, is this new this new music that they can't understand or control and that's ch- sort of changing all. There's nothing they can do. It's above them. Yeah. That just seems really sort of symbolic to me. For all the, it was a last last minute, oh, we'll, you know, we'll, we don't want to go on the ferry. We don't want to go to... Uh, Tunisia or whatever, so they will do it on the roof. Yeah. It's so perfect yeah. on, on so many levels. Uh, well, all the Beatles story, it's really... It's kind of, yeah, ripe with symbolism throughout. Isn't it yeah. just, yeah. Isn't it? It's why no one gets sick of it. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, the, the book, for me, it's a long book. It's about 140,000 words. And I always... Mm had the rule that, you know, if you go over 100,000, that's just rude. Right? <laughs> yeah. People ain't got the time, you should keep to 100,000. Uh, but this one, it wasn't having it. It was just, yeah. I'm sure if I didn't have a deadline, yeah. it would still be there expanding expanding. I'm sure the Beatles are infinite and you can never stop sort of writing about them or talking about them. I mean, one of those class clashes I, kept, I, I was watching just today, actually, was um, it's kind of off the back of reading the Blake book because mm. I, I was watching that day, one of the David Frost interviews they did about... Transcendental oh, yes, yes, yes. And it's um, it's John Mortimer in the crowd. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it, you know John Mortimer. Yeah. QC, I'm sure yes, it's yes. him. Like, but he's funny, and he, I mean, he's it's so interesting because he's literally like the you're as you know what's the Blake character? You're as yeah, the, the, the left of, brain, the yeah. rational <laughs> sort of. And he's saying you know basically his point is meditation. You're just going to sit around staring at your navels, and no one's going to actually sort out the world's problems. <laughs> and there's actually a bit where he says. The universe is a, is a soulless biological place, right? 
<laughs> which right. is just so... Um, yeah, and he's and, certain about that. Yeah, he's, he's completely so definite. certain. Yeah. And George Harrison, who's all of 24 or 5, yeah. um, mm. is just so articulate in just saying, yeah. saying about this idea that it's um, well, George, George you and without you. George, kind of George yeah. is talking about something that he knows about. Yes. George is talking first-hand experience. Yeah. Uh, John, that John Mortimer just has no clue what he's sort of talking yeah, about. Yeah. You know, if he would, if he'd try it, perhaps. Yeah. He mm. might sort of, he might sort of see uh, where he's going wrong. I think. I think the universe is a soulless biological thing, and it's up for us to improve it. And we're not going to improve it if we're going to stay, stay quiet still, enjoying peace and perfection. There's nobody saying it's John all day, are they? You see, all these doctrines and beliefs that have been laid down by great prophets, they've been put down there because these people have actually experienced it. And by their experience with some form of truth, they've tried to put it out for all the rest of the people to take up. But his argument is just based on no experience at all. But yeah. the other people in the audience are just fantastic. It's a real range. Like like the Savile Row crowd. Mm. People from all perspectives mm. about it. People are, and people there's a great guy who says, I saw you on the telly and I thought, these these guys are Quakers. <laughs> <laughs> we've, been, we've been doing this for ages. Yeah. You know, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like a precursor to the Malcolm Muggeridge sort of Python thing where mm. ten years later they've lost the crowd, those that generation, yes, and they yes. look really stupid, whereas they're still sort of clinging on in yeah. 1970 or whatever. It's, I mean, the, the amount of Python stuff that you just couldn't imagine if it hadn't been for the Beatles, mm. that mm. just the ability to sort of mock the establishment, yeah. it's the way they did. Uh, and, you know, so many of their setups have that um, Richard Lester thing of, like, putting a, a desk in a field with a cow and a, yeah. and a coat stand and having, you know, Paul McCartney dressed as a soldier behind it and something that, that sort of level of absurdity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I love all that. Mm. And there's been, we get little bursts of it, like the mighty Bush will probably be the last, last little burst of it, but uh, I'm sure we're overdue. And Vic and Bob, mm. Vic and Bob in yeah. particular, uh, they definitely yeah. had it, but a bit more of that. Well, the that. kind of comedy that just seems to be completely... Have no kind yeah. of back orders and the, the sort of the sort of Lord of Misrule sort of yeah. um, that sense of just mischief and cheek and just not uh, not being bound mm. by, by anything. That whole that whole you know jesters were allowed to sort of you know go up and fart at the king and, yeah. and stuff like that because you needed that, that pinch of chaos. Yeah, um, or else it's you're just going to sort of. Uh, society's just going to dry up and freeze and, and die. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you need that little anarchic energy in there. Yeah. You mentioned the sort of attitude of the press towards the Beatles on those early tours where the world is getting introduced to them mm. and that so that I went back and watched a couple of them because they are just like yeah. if they were scripted they'd be just some of the most brilliant pieces of you know <laughs> yeah. four-handed writing yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah they're yeah. so patronising yeah. the, the, the press were just so condescending yeah it's unbelievable especially at the very beginning you know yeah well all, all the way through to be honest 
completely yeah. obsessed with the idea of when's this going to end? When's the bubble going to burst? Yeah, it's absolutely. Being asked that, yeah. And they're all going, oh, probably, probably a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very realistically, yeah. maybe 18 yeah. months. He's not, I'm not going to be singing She Loves You in 10 years. No. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 2022, Paul McCartney <laughs> yeah. is headlining Glastonbury on the oh. pyramid stage. Did you watch Paul at Glastonbury? Oh, of course I did, yeah. I couldn't get to Glastonbury at last. Mm. I was sort of, I don't know, hinting to everyone who might possibly put people on a stage if they needed, like, a talk about William Blake or anything like that. <laughs> I would be there. So, no, I was, I was at home with my wife um, on the TV with mm. going to the speakers, which was, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Um, it did feel very good timing after the past sort of year where we've had Paul bring out, his, well, yeah. Get Back and his lyrics book yeah. and stuff. It was always Definitely. like, it was but yes, it perfect was. timing considering that gig's been... Pushed back three times or whatever. It was, but I just loved the way... I mean, it was such a Paul McCartney thing to do. He could so easily have just sort of stood on that stage and was like, I'm 80, here is my life's work. Yeah. Right, here is like three hours of every song that you know, to, I mean, you love to pieces, and it'll be a real sort of Ozymandias sort of look on my work, she <laughs> might expect, this is my life's work. But he can't, he's Paul McCartney. Yeah. He's got to pretend he's not that special. Mm. He's got to do that, oh, I think, uh, you know, put Junior's Farmer in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few, few wings deep cuts to start off with, you know. It's such a Paul McCartney thing to do. Well, from reading the book, I kept thinking, like, do you like Bond? Because <laughs> there's, <so, laughs> there's so many things about that you like, like the way that the character James Bond is represented, what you talk about, and obviously all the problematic elements of the Ian Fleming books. But are you a Bond fan? Well, well it's, yeah, it's, I'm certainly. Uh, that's the thing with Bond. You, you, you know, in the, in the 21st century, you look, especially if you look at the books, mm. and you sort of wince a lot, and you go, oh, yeah. Jesus, no, what the <laughs> hell? Um, and it's very easy to, you know, I don't know, look at uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and uh, all those scenes where Roger Moore's just been really patronising to um, Barbara Back and going up women drivers and all that sort of stuff. Oh, no, and, and, and go, well, this, this is uh, well, it's imperialistic, it's misogynistic, mm. so therefore I'll, I'll dismiss it. People do that and then they go, but why do I still like it? Right. Why, what is it about it? Why do I still like it? Why are we? Why do I see every sort of Bond film? Mm. There's definitely something else there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's that it's the way that the sort of negative and positive aspects of masculinity are so bound to each other in, in the sort of the Bond character that it's almost like you can't have one without the other, mm. which is in some way a lot more honest than a lot of other sort of sort of male uh, icons and, and heroes. Mm. He is he is a fascinating character. And I do think the way he has changed over the, the past 60 years does tell us a lot about how we've changed, especially how men have changed. Mm. And ultimately, it's been a positive move. Now, it's obviously not gone as, as far as people would like or, or anything like that, and it's certainly not perfect. There's no... It's, it's not ideologically pure to like Bond, mm. right? But it's sort of... It's slightly inhuman to deny yeah. there's the appeal of it. Yeah. There's definitely an appeal there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, trying to sort of get that. What I hope is, is that the, um, I sort of make a case for Bond over the sort of course of the book. I didn't want it to be Beatles good, Bond bad no, or any, no. anything like that. Um, that's what I was so desperately sort of trying, trying to avoid. Mm. And I don't think it's a case of, uh, of trying to persuade people to like or dislike any of them. Mm. It's just trying to 
see them from the perspective of the, of the mm. book offers yeah. is useful. And is, yeah. I've had a few people who've gone, oh, I've really gone off John Lennon after I've, really? I've read your book. Oh, oh really? I didn't, I didn't mean to, didn't mean to turn people off John Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose that's the Blakeian thing of seeing both. Sides you need both sides. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, again, I use that that quote from Blake. You know, as the epigraph. You know, um, without um, contraries is no progression. You, yeah. you sort of you need both. It's the marriage of heaven and hell. You can't just have heaven mm. or hell. You, it's the marriage of them that's that's, uh, mm. that's where the interesting things are that's all happening. So so putting them together like that. But yeah, I mean, there's no way you can write about Ian Fleming in 2022 and not make him mm. sound absolutely. I mean, he is a complete prat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's but he's caught sort of quite funny. And this is kind of, I mean. I'll come back to that, but thinking about Bond, like, because it was made me sort of, I mean, I grew up loving Bond. And yeah. Bond was so ingrained in what it was to grow up watching terrestrial television. Yeah. You know, Bond yeah. for me is like bank holiday, you know, mm-hmm. ITV mm-hmm. after, you know, Sunday lunch or whatever. And I think what's quite interesting is that you're not. I never really think of Bond as being made for its sort of current audience. Ah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I grew up with them in the same way as the Beatles, without any sort of, like, chronological reference to them. Yeah. So when I started enjoying them, and I've got a whole... I mean, I've got a WhatsApp group with my friends that's called Bond and Beatles. Excellent. Really? Yeah. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so I'm banging the target demographic. You are my target demographic yeah. this, yeah. But I, for me, growing up, part of the enjoyment was this sort of, like, self-deprecating th- Britishness of, mm. like, look how... I mean, it's so ludicrous that we thought that Britain had that sort of standing in the world in the <laughs> 70s. But beyond the stuff that's sort of deliberately funny... And a lot of the things that now are definitely a bit more sort of icky yeah, um, were kind of brushed off as just being like, oh, look at those stupid people in the yeah. 60s or whatever, how, you know, Philistine attitudes towards, you know, women or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But that seems to have turned the corner into something more sort of insidious, I suppose, mm. in more recent years where we take things like that rightfully more seriously. Yeah. But... It's just, in, yeah, I guess it's interesting that there's so much part of the sort of cultural landscape mm. that, yeah, it's hard to have a connection of what it was like, what 1970 Bond was like, you know, or something yeah. like one of the probably the worst films is uh, uh, Living That Die, actually, in terms of, you know, its portrayals of black people. It's certainly one of the most problematic novels. Mm. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. I think at the time they thought this was very progressive, you know. Why can't well, we I think have it was a master? Trying, yeah, it was like a sort of black exploitation sort of stuff film, wasn't it? Like that's yeah. what they were kind of going for. But now you look back and it's sort of yeah. In, in, there's, a, there's a couple in the sixties where he very clearly is forcing himself on a woman who is not consenting, mm. and. They're still shown, you know, on ITV in the afternoons and things like yeah. that. You'd think any other sort of film, they go, let's just cut that bit before we, you know, put that out. It's, uh, it's clear. But there's something about, because it's Bond, you know, it gets away with things. It's, yeah. I, I write a bit about... It's like an old relative or something. Yeah. You're like, what are they like? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's like when they thought, well, we'll call this film Octopussy. Mm. And everyone's like, oh, well, it's Bond, so it's all, it's, that's fine yeah. and stuff like that. And there was this research... Um, where they asked uh, young girls and women 
what they thought for a film called Octopussy, and they were just a large proportion were really sort of horrified and appalled. Mm. And then they went, oh, but it's a Bond film, and they're like, oh, fine. And, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's yeah. it's it's become the establishment, so you don't question it. It's mm. just um, it's just sort of allowed. My Bond experience is different from yours because I've got that thing where. My favourite Bond is the one I films I watched that were coming out when I was younger. Right. And I was really <laughs> which is Timothy Dalton. Yeah, yeah. And I was really mm. pleased to see that those... I always thought that was, like, controversial opinion or, like, I was just being needlessly controversial to say I like the Timothy Dalton Bonds. But in the book, you say they are quite critical. Yeah, I mean, between yeah. Bond fans, they love them. Mm. But it, to the general audience, mm. there's a bit of a gulf between right. what the, the Bond fans like and the uh, yeah. and the general... Like, like you know, Moonraker. Everybody turned up in their masses to see Moonraker had a great old time. But yeah. Bond fans are like, no, we need, you know... <laughs> there's a, there's a yeah. double-taking pigeon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we need Timothy Dalton. And that's that's yeah, we want to go back yeah. to Fleming. I mean, they're quite dark, those Daltons, and they're quite violent. I think they were the first sort of fifteen rated ones, weren't they? And they were sort of more akin to like damaged Daniel Craigie Bond. Yeah, so, but yeah. maybe people weren't ready for it. He goes back. To, one of the, you, you mentioned earlier the self depreciating uh, sort of factor. Which, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is the, about the one of the few things that Bond and the Beatles share. They just mm. somehow manage to not take themselves seriously ever, mm. and yeah. it's brilliant, and I love it. It must be an innate sort of sort of British thing, mm. and it sort of saves Bond an awful lot. The fact that it's slightly mocking itself yeah. during, a lot, uh, during a lot of things, it doesn't take itself that seriously. Yeah, mm. I and mean, that's the brilliant thing. Another of the big points that Bond and Beatles collide is you write a lot about the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony, mm-hmm. and you, you talk about how that. You know Daniel Craig's appearance with the Queen and the Union Jack parachute and everything. Yeah, and how that is a brilliant patriotic moment, but it is really funny. It's as well. a punchline, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and that's such a brilliantly shot one. Yeah, yeah. Really, but the fact that the Queen hurling herself out of the helicopter yeah. took place in the background of the shot yeah. <laughs> while we're just looking at Daniel Craig's yeah, yeah, face yeah. was just a masterclass in sort of comedy. Yeah, um, the, 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 the Union Jack parachute in the. Um, in that fantastic ski jump, in, yeah, at the, at the opening. I mean, um, I had no idea from the. I had no idea the guy nearly died yeah. doing that. I watched it again on YouTube and thought, "Oh bloody hell!" <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that. Yeah, it's yeah. astonishing, isn't yeah. it? It's. I mean, those pre CGI stunts. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I talk a lot about Bond being death and how yeah. um, the stunt team basically took on that sort of mantle, mm. um, and it is very different watching pre-CGI action sequences because yeah. it's so easy not to care mm. when, you know, mm. things are immaculate and people are flying around everywhere and just missing and stuff like that. But you know none of it's, yeah. none yeah. of it's real in the way that a lot of those, those early Bond stunts um, are still breathtaking. They're still yeah. extraordinary. Which Top Gun seems to have proved over the last few months. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've not seen um, Top Gun, actually. Yeah, I think it's just people are crying out to watch something that's not filmed on a green screen. But uh-huh. um, that's the beginning of uh, Spy Who Loved Me, isn't it, for people mm. who might not know. Oh, yes, but sorry. that brings me on, because um, obviously that is quite synonymous with Partridge. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the other good links Langer, is Langer, that Langer, uh, Langer. Bond, I love, I always thought it was a great character point that Bond hates the Beatles. Yeah. And the only other person who is uh, prattish enough to dismiss the Beatles is Partridge. Yeah. But it strikes me how, like, um, Partridge Fleming is. Oh, yeah. I can, the, I can, oh, how much, like, 
Partridge would want to be like Fleming. No, I think I mean in uh, he just really reminds me of such a part, like proto Partridge oh, character of his okay. like the way he thinks of himself compared to the way that he is and yeah, right, this yeah. fantasy. But like obviously Bond is a like a literary avatar of his, yeah, but Partridge's yeah. sort of broadcasting persona is. Yeah. You know, oh, I think that's, that's something as well that's just so fundamentally British. As yeah, well. but there is like is, I mean, comic characters are all about kind of status, aren't they? And Ian Fleming had this thing where he was from the posh background, mm. but no one quite took him. He felt he wasn't taken seriously. Yeah, he just yeah. Wrote these thrillers. Yeah, that, that is there is quite a lot of comedy. In Definitely. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was was having a conversation uh, with a mate uh, who also realizes that deep down they love the Bond films, but they're not sure why. And they were going... Is it just the music? And I thought a lot about that. And I go, I'm sure it's probably not just the music, yeah. but it's an awful, like, large part of it. Mm. The, the, you know, especially the John Barry stuff is so good. Mm. And um, the, it really does affect you in, in a really great way. It does make you feel, you know, a few inches taller listening to John Barry. Yeah. Um, and when it gets a, gra- a great um, theme tune as well. Mm. It's always the the best remembered Bond films. Just coincidentally, seem to be the ones with the good theme yeah, tunes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I don't know whether the, how how real that connection is, but yeah. uh, living daylights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah. I you know I'm a, a fan of the Aha uh, mm. uh, uh, music for that. Although I believe they didn't get on too well with John Barry, but <laughs> yeah. that's their problem, not mine. Yeah, but there's, I mean, talk, I mean, talking about the soundtracks. I mean, Live and Let Die. You make a good point about the how un-Paul McCartney that song is in terms of the lyrics. It's so anti-Paul McCartney. Mm. Um, It's the opposite of everything he says in all these other songs. Um, And he was very proud of it as a sort of work-for-hire jobby. He had Mm. to go and write this, you know, murderer's point of view, this killer's sort of point Mm. of view. And he did the job and, you know, did it brilliantly and was very sort of happy with it. But it really sticks out to me. Mm. Yeah. Especially after reading the lyrics book uh, and listening, and especially because the the sort of appraisal of Paul has just come up so much over the past, you know, couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Considering, I remember, you know, around the "Give My Regard to Broad Street" sort of era, and how he was just the naffest, yeah, yeah, uh, wacky macker thumbs aloft in <laughs> in, in um, smash hits. Yeah. 
uh, and they wanted, you know, the you know the the, the cool edge lord sort of, you know, John Lennon sort of thing. But his constant sort of, you know, belief in love, family, home, mm. you know, environmentalism, vegetarian, all this sort of stuff, is so um, in touch with Generation Z mm. um, that the world's caught up with him now. Yeah. Uh, and he's become this great older state. And to the young people, the idea that people thought Paul McCartney was naff yeah. is bewildering to them. It's really yeah. confusing. Yeah. This is a point you talked about. In the Adam Buxton podcast where you're talking about kind of that edgelord thing, Generation X, and I, I was struck because you just mentioned Top Gun. Mm. Like, I feel like Top Gun was a success at the time because it was slightly pre all that irony thing and it was... So, of, yeah, it certainly yeah. fitted into that mid-80s, mid-80s to late-80s, yeah. And then Top Gun for years was completely ridiculous. Yeah. Like, you know, to the point where obviously it's the Reservoir Dogs thing, and you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the irony came yeah, in. Yeah, the irony. Mm. And now I think we are, like, Top Gun's just Maverick's come up, and everyone's going, oh, yeah, that is good. Yeah. It's, it does feel like... But it doesn't like, make... Similar... I mean, the first one's still bad, and it's still po-faced, and it's still funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because it takes itself seriously, and mm. whereas the new one is, you know, very much leaning into... It's kind of reputation as it sort of currently is, where like it knows it's bombastic and stupid, and okay, um, you know it doesn't take long for I mean for these things to be reassessed, though, yeah. is it? And yeah. but I think Lennon would be such an edge lord if he was still kicking around. Yeah, he would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't predict what he would have no. would have been like. It's I, I mean he, he could have gone horribly wrong. There's, there's yeah. no doubt about it. But at the same yeah. time, he could not have. Yeah, it's 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 odd to me that you know of all the um, musicians of the you know, the past decades, the one who's come through as like the most um, emotionally empathetic, wise, almost not saint like, but the most um, stood up is Nick Cave. Mm. You know, of all people, you know, if you read his red hand file things, yeah. what he yeah. writes is just beautiful and mm. wise and poetic and, and and really from the heart. Mm. And you look at him, you know, in the old uh, early bad seeds days when yeah. he was just this this nasty junkie. Mm. And you know, of all the people you could predict would yeah. come good, you'd never have predicted no. Cave. Just never would have done. And I think there's an element as well. I remember when we did the John Ronson episode, we chatted a bit about this, but we didn't use it. We talked about, I think there was that kind of, maybe some kind of controversy around the murder ballads thing. Because yeah, there was, there was a lot of songs about murdering women. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. And so I think he's kind of come through that and it's kind of made him wiser as well. Yeah, I don't think he'd do that. But again, it had that, there was a, a sense of self-depreciating in the in the cover, which was just said... Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Murder Ballads, mm. which is, for yeah, me, that's, it's very funny. Yeah, that's great, yeah. Like, and then, and it, it has slightly sort of moved away from from the, um, from the humour. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially with all the Warren Ellis uh, stuff yeah, he's yes. doing, which is very beautiful and very sort of moving. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm very impressed by it. But afterwards, I just kind of think... Oh, I should listen to Goldie Looking Chain now to sort of, <laughs> yeah. sort of balance things out. You know, yeah, Fear of a Welsh yeah. Planet, stick that yeah. on you. Um, <laughs> if you don't have that level of humour, yeah. Um, an old, an old, uh, and much missed friend of mine, uh, an old beat poet called Brian Barrett, he used to say to me, "If you can't see the humour in something, you haven't seen the truth in it." Right? Mm. And I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, and when there's something without humour in it, mm. I am really sort of suspicious. Yeah. You know, it's 
there's something, you know, you're taking yourself a little bit too seriously. There's something wrong, basically, for me. Yeah. Um, I think especially with Lennon's stuff, for, for me, his biggest misfires are when he's trying to be very sort of arch. And I just never really believe his, like, completely... Um, I mean, obviously, there's uh, that's a bit of a generalization. Thinking of things like Plastic Ono Band, but certainly his stuff in the in the seventies is when he's being incredibly po-faced, yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't quite ring true. And you just think, I just I don't really believe that's who he who he is. It's, it's, it was such a big um, personality shift mm. when he went from you know uh, Acid Cynthia. Brian Epstein and uh, to you know Yoko heroin uh, Phil Spector, yeah. um, much more than you know Paul was supposed to be dead, but Paul was the same. The the, the humour disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who was writing all these funny skits, the the um, the irrelevance, it just went out the window. Yeah, and in it, the book you kind of pinpoint this to <coughs> Rishikesh, don't you? Like, it's around then, yeah. yeah. It is. It is around then, and to the extent that when you see posters with him with. Hair piece, that sign, hair piece on the window. I think it's, it's Amsterdam. No one ever goes, Oh, that's John Lennon, like making a, a joke about wigs, right? Mm-hmm. But in the early 60s, it would have been, Yeah, hair piece, that's a wig. We get you expect it to be a joke with John, you, you would see it that terms. Mm. Now, that something really fundamentally sort of changed mm. with him, you know, his later work was lacking because it had gone mm. I, for me, anyway. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's interesting, you said. Someone read the book and said they went away not liking John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I just... Uh, you, the chapters about John, I think, are brilliant because they give such a, a rounded picture of him. Mm. Yeah. And I think you're very conscious of this idea there's a kind of cover story to John, particularly to John yeah, and Yoko. Yeah, But you, you really go into the idea that, you know, story of the John and Maypang that continued, mm-hmm. could have continued even after. Yeah, I <laughs> um, think so, The yeah. fact that Yoko's other relationships and things and... Um, the fact that there was a very performative element of Yoko and John's uh, very much so relationship. Yeah. I thought I found that they they, really they were really the hardest chapters to write. They they were the mm. last ones I did because I was still working on, still thinking about them, still mm. trying to sort of get my head around them uh, towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And for me, what I would advise if anybody wants to, you know, understand John Lennon. And there's lots of great books, you know, the Ray Connolly books, great and all that sort of stuff. But the, the thing to do is to read Julia Baird's book, his stepsister, mm-hmm. um, Cynthia Lennon's book, and then May Pang's book. Mm-hmm. And they, the three of them, they cover his entire life. Mm-hmm. And they really chime with each other. Mm-hmm. You really get the sense that the person they're describing is the same person across time. Mm-hmm. And those three perspectives on him, I think, are the clearest, you know, clearest John Lennon we're sort of going to get. Mm-hmm. You use a great way of describing John Lennon is it, is it wounded healer yeah it's the wound, it's the wounded healer archetype yeah and it's it, there was a certainly the Rolling Stone magazine the 70s the 80s the sense of trying to turn him into a saint and all this sort of stuff it was it was less interesting it made him less than he was the the wounded arc the wounded healer archetype is fascinating because mm. it's us you yeah. know mm. where none of us are perfect and we're all wounded and we're all trying to be better mm-hmm. you know he never became what he wanted to be but the, the 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 fact that he was trying and the fact that he was moving in the right direction is the core of why we connect to john lennon i mm. think i think and we really do there's something about his voice that yeah. i can't think of anyone else who has it mm. you know you you really feel 
honesty sort of pouring yeah. out of his voice. Mm-hmm. Um and and yeah, and that that is him. So it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, he's bad because, you know, he beat Cynthia and, uh, you know, he was cruel to Julian. And, and these things are all true, but you sort of do have to see the full picture and not just... It's the same with Bond. Mm. You know, you can't just go, oh, I've seen, I've seen something bad in that, so uh, it's dead to me, you know. Mm. You're just missing out on the full picture, I think. That's mm. much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. And then you do make the point that, look, that Paul is just the absolute flip side of that and just in, into the sort of minute eye of it and embracing just being a little bit boring. <laughs> and that, well, that's well, actually... Domestic, or, maybe. maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, boring is never a word no. to, to use, but in terms of just a normal... He likes the minute eye of life, doesn't he? And I think Lennon... And also, that's another thing about Bond, is, like, the spell would be broken if you saw Bond doing his washing or anything remotely mundane. Yes, Whereas you can kind of picture Paul doing that, but you can't really picture John doing it. (laughs) Maybe he didn't. And that's why he probably made a big deal about his sort of domestic years in the Dakota building or whatever. But. Yeah, he baked about one loaf of bread. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe two over a five-year period. Yeah. Might, and maybe some rolls at one point. But that, that was a, that all Imagine what he would have been like in lockdown. Insufferable. I do I do have a love for those. Um, there's quite a lot of them. The, the, the whole genre of, like, disgruntled ex-employees mm, of Yoko yeah. books. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are sort of dismissed because, you know, there's there's agendas, there's um, the stolen diaries, there's lots of reasons to dismiss them as primary sources and things like that. But it's a bit like the sort of Trump administration, though. Isn't yeah, it? Once yeah. you've got to your hundredth disgruntled employee, yeah. Yeah. you've got to wonder Abs- why the turnover's so high. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, the story they do tell does sort of, you know, fit yeah. between them, definitely. Mm. I mean, that story about the, is it the Peter Doggett interview? Where he's asking Yoko oh, about... yeah. You mention this in the book. Yeah, I do, yeah. He's asking Yoko if she has a partner. Yeah. This is after John's yeah, death. Or she, she's talking about, you know, the lonely life of the widow yeah. or something mm. like that. And then there's a cough from the bathroom. <laughs> Apparently a very male cough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which they just go quiet and change the subject. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's on Peter Doggett's website. Uh, I kept that account of that interview mm. with uh, Yoga. That's fascinating. I'd love to know what happened to his book. About the book that was kind of... Yeah, um, Prisoner of Love, I think it was called, Mm -hmm. John Lennon and Dakota. So this was a book that was supposed to come out a few years ago. Supposed to be last year, was it? It was quite recent. Yeah, Mm. 2020. And the the cover work, artwork came out, and it was great. It was a really good cover. And, um, you know, Peter Doggett's written some good good Mm. Beatles books, so everyone was into it. So so John had quite a lot of his own diaries and audio recordings that had Beatles mega fans will know um but you casual people might not but these have sort of think bits of it have turned up in certain books but they've mysteriously never really been around but this one so what if you had to put a theory on it what do you do you think there might have been some litigation that stops it i I don't know i don't know what happened um the there's a a common uh belief amongst uh, a lot of beatles fans is yoko went here's a lot of money Right. We'll have the rights to that, thank you. And, you know, I'm, I know what it's like making a living as a writer. You would agree to such things if, if, <laughs> if the money made sort of sense. Yeah. But I would have loved to have read it. I mm, really would have yeah. I, don't, I don't know if he had access to some of the diaries, although that's that's I hear that a lot. I hear the rumour that he did have access to some of the diaries. Mm. So I would, I mean, I don't think we're really going to get a... 
established version of John Lennon in the 70s while Yoko was still around. It's, it's the one area, I mean, for a man whose life's been so intensely studied, mm. there's a lot of myths that sort of, most likely because he, w- he would tell those stories himself. He would yeah. you know, tell mm. the, the story of um, the lost yeah. weekend yeah. Uh, when, you know, that really doesn't do that in town relationship justice in any, you know, yeah. shape, shape yeah. or form. Mm, yeah. 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 But it's, he's a quite an unreliable narrator. I know there's yes. some who say that he... That, that is over-egged, his like, mm. habit of sort of contradicting himself. But, yeah, their public hey, hey, story and yeah. uh, whatever was going on, you know, how do you reassess a character when you don't basically know anything about five years of, you know, there's <laughs> so many conflicting arguments. And, you know, I think Yoko has enjoyed a bit of a sort of reassessment over recent years, which is long overdue and yeah. very positive but it lot, seems it's in danger of being a bit of an overcorrection maybe. yeah I, I think so yeah. i think i think a lot of her music is standing up well mm. uh, and i think that's a really interesting and valid sort of uh, adjustment um be interesting to see what the art world make of her conceptual art mm-hmm. when she's gone it's it's I, I i'm not sure how much will be marked as truly original i'm not sure uh what people will make of that but yeah. you know so i think i mean i like her i think she's Great in Get Back, and yeah. uh, I think there's... well, she's weirdly missing in Get Back. Sorry, I feel I'm feeling actually, you know, got no, an no, anti Yoko thing. No, and you know, her role in the story is so um, it's so rich and unexpected and interesting yeah. that that you want to sort of keep picking at it and, yeah. and sort of examining yeah, yeah. it. It's it's a, it's a real sort of unexpected plot twist in the yeah. Beatles story, the arrival of Yoko. It's a really it interesting is, something. But if you look at, you know, the transcriptions, including in John Harris's mm. Get Back book, you know, whenever um, your man, the director, was going, oh, we'll go to Tunisia and have 100 torch lips, Arabs and all that mm. sort of stuff, uh, Yoko would be there going, oh, no, we should, like, do it in front of 20,000 empty chairs. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when you saw the scenes, yeah. all her sort of comments about the 20,000 or 2,000 empty chairs or whatever it was were all out disappeared. And when you saw how much Paul Lindsay Hogg got mocked for going on about the, you know, the amphitheatre in Tunisia Mm, or something like that, you can sort of see why you maybe want to sort of have taken the... Because you know how people would have loved to have seen the Beatles play live there. See, if they did play in 20,000 empty chairs, people would not be happy. Yeah. It's not well, a good. It's not yeah, a good idea. Trolled. Would be like <laughs> yeah. earning a million pounds. Really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the funniest moments is when Paul was saying like. I want to. I can't write songs like John and Yoko because it'd be just about like a white room or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's like because yeah. it's it's like a brilliant sort of parody of the conceptual art world in a way. Yeah. But, you know. But also, I don't get much animosity from Paul in those scenes. No. Know, seeing, no. Seeing abs- the amp abs- thing abs- and stuff, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. For, I think it was an eye opener for a lot of people seeing. Yeah. Just how reasonable Paul seemed, uh, you know, yeah. all yeah. of that sort of stuff. Even with George, uh, and certainly with Yoko. Mm. Yeah, that's that was his excuse for not writing with John anymore. Yeah. He would just just try and do a, something about a cloud to keep yeah. him yeah. happy or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of George, the chapter on, chapters on George are brilliant as well because I think oh, as well again you, you yeah. kind of capture the roundedness of him and the complications of him. Really yeah, well. oh, good. I, yeah, yeah, I was certainly trying to. Yeah, yeah I was certainly trying to. You know. Um, I was trying to do that with everyone, but you know, people like that, you des- they deserve um, a portrait that's all of them, mm. you know, that reflects all of them. 
that sees, you know, their qualities, you know, as well as how difficult they were. Yeah. Various people, but really sort of... The anti-materialist who had really, really loads of really nice cars. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was the most Bond-like on that level, you know, with his 007 T-shirt and uh, his womanising. Yeah, Yeah, the womanising. Yeah, I like that description. There was three Georges. uh, Yes. um, Yes, that's right. I I think that comes from, was it Chris O'Dell's book? Yeah. That's a really interesting one as well. Chris O'Dell's writing about to, so there's sort of the, the spiritual side and kind of the, the fun side, the sarcastic side. I think there's the other one, just the angry bitter side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there's certainly the, the sort of uh, devout but losing touch with humanity sort mm, of side. Yeah. Party George mm. uh, and really irrationally angry about his tax situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. thing I really wanted to talk about was um and this isn't that Beatles related but it's kind of related to the Blake book mm-hmm. is I just saw um Jerusalem uh, last week oh it's Jez extraordinary yeah, isn't it the Jez Butterworth play with yeah. Mark, Mark Rylance well he he uh, co-wrote Spectre so ah yes. oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah great yeah. <laughs> okay. so yeah. um and it's obviously so like for people who don't know it's a, a play that first came out in 2009 maybe 2008 mm. it's been revised with um, revived with the original cast of Mark Rylance and Mackenzie Crook mm-hmm. and it's the story of um a very very like charismatic man who lives on a kind of a, a van on the outskirts of a wood in, in yeah. Wiltshire yeah right. and he's kind of a drug dealer in a Bit of pain in the ass for the locals, but a lot of the a lot of the teenagers in the area kind of congregate around him. And he has a kind of almost mystical quality to him, he, and he seems to kind of embody this kind of very English spirit of kind of rebellion. Mm. Um, it's a brilliant play, which is very distinctly not the uh, you know Norman continuity empires. Yes, yeah, exactly. it's, not, it's not what the what Bond would call England. Yeah, exactly. But in a way, it does show it does um, the play is about that conflict between those two Englands in a yeah. way as, as yeah. it's kind of planning permission um, you know they want to get rid of him and move him on and everything mm-hmm. there's a great bit where he says oh god a piece of paper <laughs> <laughs> Mark Rylance is just absolutely brilliant in it. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to you know do, I, because of the revival of it and it's sort of quite a different era now to when it was first on um, it's all I, I mean I loved it and I loved it because it was complicated but there is almost like a Brexit reading of it in a way where it's about you know standing you know the little man standing up against the big man and it's a kind of yeah. anti-bureaucracy kind of story maybe I don't know I can't see whether the your typical Brexit voter no yeah. would be supportive no of uh, Rooster in, in, in that it's yeah. yeah it's an interesting one but I, I wondered I mean yeah maybe that's a kind of a bit of an extreme way of looking at it, but th- I wonder if it almost kind of blurs into that kind of slightly eco-fascism thing as well of the kind of standing your own and oh, yes, the, well, certainly there's the stubbornness. Mm. I think is a mm. bit of a national uh, trait. Mm. Um, the whole Jerusalem. I was I, I was thinking about this listening to um, when the lionesses won and they all burst in on the the uh, press conference of the coach singing uh, she's coming it's coming home it's coming mm. the three lions sort of thing mm. just three lions um and jerusalem mm. I, I i started to see it's quite similar in in this strange way they both take the view 
they're both sort of steeped in a nostalgia, but they sort of both take the view that we could be better. Mm. Mm. We could be better than this. And they're, they're, they're very distinctly not, we are great, right? Yeah. We are the super powerful sort of, you know. And those are the two songs that they're not officially the songs, but they are. Mm. People mm. have chosen them. You know, Jerusalem uh, is the English national anthem, not because parliament say so because the people decided and you know say the new order england song that's that's a great song that could have been the song it's not the song mm. uh, but and it's a bit sort of that england it's a bit sort of we're brilliant we're you know we're better than the other people sort of thing and that's not what people go for mm. they go for this we could be better mm. let's imagine if we were better sort of songs mm. and so for me that feels very true very sort of um the core part of the aspect of this country that I sort of cling to for hope when things go horribly wrong and people vote for the, the most um, extraordinary things in this country and it can really be depressing and really <laughs> quite get you down. <laughs> the, the actual sort of spirit, I, I associate much more with the, the Beatles side of it than the Bond side of it, mm. which is from, from, from talking that book. I think I described the establishment in, in the, 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 the Beatles book as... Um, it's like a cuckoo, like it's a cuckoo in the nest that's like taking all the resources and attention, but like they're, they're, they're not, they're not it, you know, they're, they're sort of a, 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 an intrusion on some, on some level, mm-hmm. as much as they claim to be yeah. this country, they're not this country, you know. Yeah. You know, I didn't think Jerusalem was about Brexit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. don't worry. It definitely is in, <laughs> interesting how that and the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony mm. sort of are, are sort of seen. And I see them as real sort of bright lights, real yeah. sort of moments of, uh, of hope. And people can go, oh, but then it went horribly wrong, mm. as if that sort of negates the fact that it happened. Yes. People yeah. don't sort of go... Well, things are terribly now, but then yeah. things went well, so we can forget the terrible sort of stuff. Yeah. They, they, but they do go, oh, that was good, but things have got terrible, so that really doesn't count. It's a weird way of dismissing the light, as it were, totally. really denying the, the the moments that when we get it right happened and yeah. still count, you know. And I think that, that, that's where I was going f- for with that, with, because I think, you know, after I saw Jerusalem, I saw the paper had done a thing about, because of the revival should it be revived? And some people were saying yes, and some people were saying no. And of course, the answer is it's both, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, it's good, yeah. you know yeah. it could be good for this reason and bad for this reason. That's why it's a good play. Yeah. yeah. yeah but um, There's anyway. also a bit of a reaction now from, you know, the 2012. I mean, I don't really agree with this theory yeah. at all, but the fact that we all thought 2012, the problems were solved and everything was marvellous, which was actually... Mm things were really just beginning to bubble away under the surface and that old England was just about to sort of come out <laughs> for one last hurrah, which sort of culminated in 2016 until now, I guess, is that I mean, you know, it was papering over cracks in some way or that... Yeah. I mean, and you've worked with Ian Sinclair before, haven't you? Uh, I, did a, I did a talk with him, yeah. Because his views on the Olympics... Oh God! Yes, very, in, very in, in fact, I was. Um, we did a podcast. Uh, I did a book called What Then? Yes, and yeah, we yeah, did yeah, a little podcast. short four-part podcast series of that with uh, my friend David uh, Bramwell. Put it together. Very proud of that. It was really lovely. Mm. Lots of music and interviews and talk, and it was really good. But we met um, Ian Sinclair for that, mm. and we went into uh, the Museum of London um, to see London Stone, which was temporarily 
in that place in this little lockup and stuff like that. So we talked about that and that was great. And then I just turned the corner and they got the um, uh, the, the petals of the cauldron of, of 2012. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's the 2012 cauldron. That's amazing. And I turn around and I, I see Ian's face and he's really not happy about <laughs> yeah. that at all. And I think, oh, I'll probably won't. won't. <laughs> Let's move on, shall yeah. we? Yeah. Sort of, well, yeah, he was very much, well, he was Hackney-based, so it was mm. much more sort of, um, you know, yeah, understandable, promises. Him, very much, yeah. Re, yeah, much a real sort of in conclusion of it. And and before it happened, that that sense of it just being this corporate hellhole was mm. very, very real. Mm. I mentioned those uh, signs. Uh, we are happy to only accept a visa that we're all around. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really Orwellian and awful. Yeah. You know, it's really sort of corporate. Yeah. But now, when I think back, I you know, I, I think about what it was like those those weeks mm. uh, and just the way uh, it lifted everyone yeah, yeah. i mm. think a lot of people found what it means to be patriotic in that yeah. 2012 mm. and it was celebrated it in all of the right ways and the bonds bond and beatles being such a big part of that mm. obviously yeah I, um, I wish we could define the words patriotic and nationalistic yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, in the way that I want to define them. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, uh, yeah. which would be right to be patriotic is to love some parts mm. the country, but really love some parts mm. of the country, but also see other parts as wrong and and you know something that can be improved on. Nationalism is just to say everything here is great because I'm on this side and other countries are worse. Mm. Right, this is the best country. That's nationalism, and uh, jingoism. It's kind of like nationalism, but from someone who's got nothing else in their lives going on. Mm. So they're mm. desperately clinging to it even more. And if that was the definition of these words, I would happily describe myself as patriotic. Yeah. Because there are aspects of this country I really do love and I would not want to be anywhere else. Mm. I always say if we were sa- you know, if we if we were sane, we'd move to Canada. But we're we're yeah. not we're not sane, we're British. <laughs> yeah. You know. But But unfortunately, yeah, just the right does have a little bit of a monopoly on the usage of the word and stuff and Bond and the Beatles are two things to be pretty celebratory about as you know they're huge successes mm-hmm. and they um, appeared so. on the same day yeah. in October Friday <laughs> afternoon in October and now uh, you know so uh, the amount of countries that would kill to have one global phenomenon like that in yeah. any particular century let alone to have two on the same day my god what was going on then <laughs> I mean, I work at Pinewood quite a lot as well, so oh, you wow. know that place basically only exists because of because of Bond films and stuff. So, yeah. you know that the legacy of it is the whole of the British film industry really, yeah. in, in that area of the yeah. world. It's just crazy. You know, if it wasn't for you so, know the the skills of the especially the stunt team and and the effects people and stuff like that. Um, you wouldn't have got things like Star Wars going mm. in the sort of late seventies, but because Star Wars went, then you got, you know, obviously Blazes Lost Ark and you know Harry Potter, and um, I think they're calling it Brollywood now because the English or the, sorry the British um, yeah. film industry is is so massive at the moment that it's dwarfing many other countries, and it, you can follow that link all back to Bond, mm. yeah, and the skills of the the, the teams making Bond. show with the same question so uh we'll ask you what is your controversial beatles opinion it's it's probably me being just slightly wrong right <laughs> but 
In my head, right, the Beatles ended when John Lennon went to America and that everything up till then in 1970, um, you know, albums like Ram and Imagine and uh, Plastic Ono Band and All Things Must Pass, you kind of have to think of them as Beatles albums mm. because they're all part of that great surge of creative energy that came after Rishikesh mm. and all the material on them. It's about the Beatles or it's, you know, yeah. it's it's got that level of Beatle sort of inspiration in that really falls off a cliff for, yeah. you know, mm. if it's the fans of John and George, but their later albums are generally seen as not having that thing. And as we've established, you know, as far back as yesterday in 65, that if there's one Beatle doing a song yeah. and it's got that thing, that yeah. spirit then it's a Beatles track. Mm. So many of those tracks have two or three Beatles on them yeah. or about Beatles or like Apple Scruffs or, you know, or about John and Paul's relationship or something like that. But for me, the Beatles story goes up until John leaving the country. That's a brilliant... That's, yeah. I mean, especially because I mean, since watching Get Back, the... And you see all the songs that are coming Exactly, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. They don't sort of make sense without the, the Beatle period when yeah. they're sort of being formed, including also, all George's stuff. They're yeah. probably playing more in the room together on those solo records than they were in the last few Beatles records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, doing all yeah. their parts separately and stuff yeah. from the White Album on. And there's so many shared musicians, you know, yeah. and they're... they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're they're not Beatles, but they're family. People like yeah. Chris Vorman or Billy yeah. Preston, you know, they're, they're, they're Beatles family. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, because the, the, the breakup is such a kind of contested affair when it happened, what, yeah. know, what was the catalyst? Um, and I, I had people who weren't really Beatles fans and watch Get Back mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, I say, when oh, Abbey Road was after, and they were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, because so that whole... Like, that was just confusing. three weeks, mate. They went off. Yeah, yeah. That, that whole kind of confusing period. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's so knotty, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah I think that's such a good point, is that yeah. the, those kind of tendrils just reach out after. And because they're, they're just so good, those those albums. In I mean, I'm sure most people have done their own, you know, black album playlist of Beatles songs from 1971. Mm. And... They're, they're such good albums, those those black album playlists. Mm. No one could really agree what the you know the track listing should be. Yeah. But we mm. do we do know from that interview that uh, Mark Lewisom had on the tape that it would be like you know four John songs, four George, mm. four Paul, and a couple for Ringo. Mm. Yeah, that happened before the end of nineteen seventy one, and mm. you know, and then you know after John goes, you get Wings, which is a, which is a separate thing. Yeah, sort of, yeah. So it is a different. Well, thing. they all very much seem like those same characters as well that you see at the end of the beat, and then they oh, do yes. kind of yes. become more their own people mm. so yeah i think it's a brilliant point yeah, yeah. that's fantastic well, that's that's me failing to be controversial <laughs> everyone's agreeing oh. so that was our chat with john higgs and a brilliant ch chat it was too <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. it was really good and I, I, I was just remembering from listening back to it how we went out for a few beers later just had a can outside it was quite nice weather when we recorded yeah it. back in August and I just I just felt god I wish we'd recorded that because that was some good yeah, chat so was. often the best chats are amongst cans post-show it's sad true. isn't it it's true it's a sad truth we talked a bit a lot more about William Blake and about John Lennon yeah mm. and learnt uh learnt, there was a good Beatles connection with the Eurison statue outside the British Library as well wasn't there oh she, right um reminded us of oh well that's what to do with Stuart Sutcliffe yes yeah yes yeah they're um, the sculptor 
uh, was t- were taught Sutcliffe. I'm, I'm yeah. just getting this from the top of my head, so I might be getting it. Yeah, no, that was right. Yeah, I think he was his tutor at art college. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Blake, I mean, as we said, John John Higgs's book on two books on Blake are great, and there's a great quote he quotes in William Blake versus the World, which is from Jerusalem. Mm. In in your bosom you bear your heaven and earth and all you behold, though it appears without, it is within in your imagination. I mean that is pretty much go. George Harrison on the nose there. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. So thank you so much to John. Uh, that was a really delightful conversation, and uh, we'll be back next week with Doc Brown, aka Ben Bailey Smith, who's a actor, rapper, comedian. I'm sure you know. Um, can be seen at the moment in Star Wars, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> and we uh, chatted to him about sort of formative musical experience and navigating the trifecta of being a triple threat um, and, you know, how different it is in the comedy world, the rapping world, and uh, his more recent turn as an actor. Um, mm. And it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, really good. And the chance to talk about, uh, you know, some hip-hop tracks that sample Beatles and Beatles-related songs. Uh, yeah. And he plays a... He plays us a, a really, really interesting track, which samples Girl. Yes, it's brilliant. I've never heard it before, and uh, no. it's firmly on my Beat the Algorithm playlist now. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a really good one. We'll be back next yeah. week with that. If you want to get the episode early, then you can go to sign up via Apple Podcasts or by going to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles. If you've enjoyed the show, then well done for getting this far. If you haven't enjoyed it, you're really <laughs> sticking it out. Um, <laughs> but you can give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you like. I think you can also rate this, this show on Spotify as well. You can, but um, you, you can't leave comments, which is uh, which well, I think not- good. because i would just read them all yeah (laughs) so thank you very much for joining us for another week and we'll see you next friday with doc brown aka ben bailey smith yeah and keep beetling on keep beetling bloody on your own personal beetles is presented by jack pelling and robin allender the podcast artwork is done by morgan ritchie it's produced by me jack pelling and is a homespun sounds production Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.